Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Crouch, and this is Policy Talks, uh, brought to you every month by Williamson, Inc., our County Chamber of Commerce. Uh, glad to have everyone here, especially here at uh, Columbia State, on this beautiful campus, on this beautiful morning. It uh, uh, looks like a uh, just a garden out there around the campus this morning, and uh, we enjoy having the Policy Talks here, and appreciate Dr. Lampley and uh, Dr. Smith uh, allowing us to, to come here every month. Got WCTV and the Channel 3 crew here with us this morning to uh, uh, keep us on the air. And uh, Tom Lawrence and um, WAKM AM 950. Uh, appreciate them uh, keeping us on the air as well. Our guests today, again, are our Williamson County Legislative Delegation, or at least some of them. And uh, I understand there's a, at least one more on the way, maybe two, so we'll... Uh, We'll go with the flow here, but uh, we're happy here so far to have our St Senate Majority Leader who represents our 23rd District here in Williamson County, Jack Johnson. We've got uh, Sam Whitson, our State Representative representing the 65th District. And Todd Warner is uh, currently not yet representing Williamson County, but uh, uh, assuming election results uh, this fall, his district will come over and take in uh, quite a bit of Spring Hill. So uh, we've invited him to uh, be here. And uh, now we're being joined by Glenn Cassida, our uh, state representative from the 63rd district. Glenn, we're glad to have you with us and uh, glad you wore a tie this morning. Look good. The, uh, uh, so we're uh, happy to have all of these gentlemen. It, uh, it's an effort. Uh, they are very busy these days from what I hear in Nashville, and we appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us and uh, sharing what's going on behind the scenes as well as some of what we see in the newspapers and uh, here on the media. I guess the biggest news this week uh, in Nashville is the governor's proposal to eliminate the tax on groceries, I think, for 30 days. Um, what do we know about that so far? Do we know any details, Jack? Or uh, is that'll be part of the budget, as I understand it, uh, budget amendment? That's correct. Good morning, everyone. Good to be back with you. Uh, yes, the governor has proposed that we eliminate the uh, sales tax on groceries uh, for a 30-day period of time. We've been having conversations about, uh, given the conservative fiscal stewardship of the state uh, over the years, where the state is in, as we talk about, in great fiscal condition right now. That's because we're very conservative with the way we manage your, your tax dollars. And that's put us in a situation where we, we would like to get some money back to taxpayers, mm -hmm. especially now when you've got gas uh, at approaching $5 a gallon. You've got unprecedented inflation uh, that, that is taking place. Now keep in mind, all of those things impact state government as well, and they drive up the cost of state government too. But we're trying to figure out a way to, to help uh, Tennessee taxpayers. Uh, and a lot, number of ideas have been, been kicked around, uh, but that is one that we could do that it will be immediate. We could do it as soon as we pass the budget, maybe make it effective for July or August, and get some money back in the pockets of, uh, of taxpayers. Another thing that's important about that type of tax relief is that it is a, uh, we can do it on a one-time basis. You know, we talk extensively here about recurring and non-recurring dollars. Right. And a recurring expense or a recurring tax cut is something that is put into place into perpetuity. Uh, something that is done on a one-time basis is something we can do with an injection. I would liken it to what we've done in the last couple of years where we've given uh, $100 million back to local governments for, mm -hmm. for infrastructure projects or things that they may need, as, as well as money back to, to schools. So just very proud that, that we've put the state in a situation where we're able to do that. A lot of states out there are not talking about any kind of tax cuts or any kind of tax relief. They're talking about tax increases. Right. So we want to be able to get money back in the pockets of taxpayers. And, uh, and so I think it's a bold, innovative uh, uh, proposal, something that uh, we've never done before. Sam, do we know how much it's going to cost the state yet? 80 million, according to my senator. And, uh, <laughs> but we have a surplus, like you said, because we manage our money well. And also, I got a call immediately from uh, Karen Parrish, our trustee, and wants to make sure that uh, the locals are held harmless. And our budget director has assured us that that will happen, and the TML is working on that. So, uh, again, it's, uh, I think it's 
it will help, but as long as our communities, our local governments are held harmless and uh, reimbursed by the state. Gwen, Todd, do you think your constituents will be in favor of this? <laughs> yes, cutting taxes on anything is, is favorable, but I think there's a lesson to be learned here. If you take a state like Tennessee and you take a state like California, Tennessee keeps taxes low, we keep regulations low, we keep government out of your life, and you have excess funds. A state like California, heavy regulations, heavy taxes. Uh, everything about that state is collapsing, and so it's just a lesson to be learned on how to run government, and I wish Washington, D.C. would look at Tennessee. Great. Brandon, how do you feel about the gas tax? Brandon Ogles just joined us. The gro I'm sorry, grocery tax. Well, I don't like any taxes, uh, but uh, unfortunately that's a, a just reality of, of living in a state that doesn't have an income tax. Uh, th there has been some uh, discussion the last couple of weeks with the, the prices of groceries rising so much and the fact that that, that tax is based on the price of the, so, you know, more revenue to the state and maybe if we should look at adjusting that. I think in the short term, uh, a, a massive tax cut would be uh, fiscally irresponsible. Uh, so just... Uh, Grocery tax is more. Well, that, that or even, even a, re, a, a quick reduction even in the uh, tax on the, the gas. Uh, I right. think we, we need to watch this spike the next couple months and then reevaluate. Uh, Tennessee's being as fiscally conservative as we are, we, we're not quick to react to things. Right. Uh, we've been uh, very patient and uh, prepared for downturns. So, right. uh, but I, I think if, you'll, if the trends continue, you'll see more discussion and you'll see maybe the, this... Uh, there will be some adjustments possibly in the future, or yeah. discussions of adjustments. Todd, what, uh, how do they feel about it in Marshall County? Oh, they, would, they would love it in Marshall County, and I want to applaud the governor uh, for bringing this, you know, bringing this idea forward. I, I'm, I'm like Brandon, I, I hate any, any tax. I know we, as a government, gotta, gotta have some taxes. Uh, and I was hoping the governor might come forth and uh, uh, Maybe not repeal this gas tax, but maybe give some of this gas tax money back to, back to the, uh, the uh, citizens of Tennessee. Uh, I own a uh, small construction company. I've ha I've got numerous jobs bid, and are, that are just starting. That when I f figured my diesel fuel, I figured it at you know, two dollars and a quarter, two dollars and a half, and now, uh, the last tanker load I got was like four eighty something. So right, it uh, it, it affects small business too. Right. I think most of the uh, energy and oxygen in, uh, on Capitol Hill this past month has been about the education bill that uh, the governor has proposed. Jack, uh, you're carrying the bill for this, the governor in the Senate, and I presume does, does that involve attending the House committee meetings as well and listening to the objections and recommendations there? I'm not allowed in House committee meetings. I don't, I, they don't invite me down there. No, I stick uh, on the Senate side of the okay. building. But uh, no, it, but the bill did advance out of the Education Committee. We had a good, good hearing on that on Wednesday, I believe it was. The days run together. Um, you know, this, we've talked about it, but just in case there's people watching or listening, uh, just a quick um, primer on how we got where we are. Uh, we've been talking about this for years, literally for years. We've had this basic education plan, or the BEP formula, as we refer to it, for 30 years. It's outdated. It's antiquated. No one really understands it. It's, it's just very difficult to get your mind around in terms of how we're funding K-12 education. So the governor convened uh, uh, a bunch of subcommittees, about 18 subcommittees made up of school board members, county commissioners, students, teachers, uh, legislators uh, to to examine the various aspects of how we fund education and what we pay for and keep in mind education of course is a partnership between state and local government uh, and so you have to take all that into consideration and so those subcommittees met over a period of several months mm -hmm. and then there was a steering committee which I sat on uh, that aggregated all of that feedback all of that input from across the state in terms of if you're going to have a new funding formula that determines how money is allocated to a student, what would it look like? And I think we've ended up in a really, really good place. 39 other states have passed something similar. We're actually late to the game on this. Um, and, and what the governor said is, I want a student-centered formula. 
I don't want to fund bureaucracies. I don't want to fund processes. I want to fund students. I want the money attached to a student. And that's what we've created. We have a formula now that will have a base formula for any kid, any kid in, in K-12 education. There's slightly over a million, I think, kids in our public schools across the state. And every one of those kids is going to get $6,860, base formula. That's to pay for a teacher, a classroom, a bus, textbooks, everything that you need. That every kid, no matter where they are, if they're a kid in public schools, they need money for this. That's a base formula. And then you have weights. And that's for someone who's from an economically disadvantaged uh, household. That's for a child that has a unique learning need. Uh, for a kid that is from perhaps a rural district where, you know, we have counties out there. The entire county, the entire county school system has 600 kids. Well, that, that presents some unique challenges for those types of districts as well. And, uh, and the governor has said that if we redo the formula, if we scrap this BEP formula that we've had for 30 years and we put this new student-centered formula into place, he is proposing an additional billion dollars for K-12 education, the largest increase in, in, in education funding in our state's history. Keep in mind, we are under litigation. Every school system in the state has signed on to a lawsuit against the state, including Williamson County and including Franklin Special, saying we're not giving them enough money to educate children. That case is pending before the Supreme Court right now, and the Attorney General has said he feels like they may you know, actually have a case there. And so there's all these things coming together that make it important we do it now, that we get it done. Now, the new formula will not go into effect until 2024. So we want to get it passed. We want to get this money appropriated, get the new formula passed, and then we can come back next year once we've had time to, to digest it and make tweaks as necessary. So it really is. It's, it's one of the most significant initiatives I've been a part of uh, in my time up there. But we need to do it. And, and the final thing I'll say, and I'll let the, my colleagues chime in on it as well. Think about this. If we do this, you can take a kid out of any county in the state, any school system in the state, Pickett County, Hancock County, Williamson County, Shelby County, and you can pull them up and you know exactly how much money is being appropriated to that child based on their unique circumstances. And with that, you can then hold the school system accountable. Now, we've got great school systems here in Williams County. Williams County Schools, Franklin Special. And they do a great job, and there's tremendous accountability there. That's not the case in every school system in the state of Tennessee. So we need to know where the money's going, how it's being spent, and with this new formula, we'll be able to do that. Sam, how's that going, going over in the house? Well, uh, I'm not on education uh, sub or full, and uh, Glenn, can maybe chime in on some of that. But I just want to say Jack is right. And I think the Senate has done some good tweaks to it this week, uh, uh, some adjustments to it. And, uh, you know, one of the challenges we have um, under this formula, I, I believe Williamson County Schools will get more money. But Franklin Special uh, is going to have a $2.5 million uh, shortfall. And Glenn and I have talked about how do we mitigate that. There's some talk about holding them harmless. 100% the first year, three quarters uh, the following year. But the real challenge for Franklin Special right now is uh, it's just the cost of housing in their area is built out and the homes keep going up. So young you know, uh, families with young kids, are they really moving into that district? And that is the challenge for them, but we just gotta make sure we take care of Franklin Special because they do an outstanding job uh, with a group of kids that, you know, from less affluent homes. So, right. uh, but Glenn and I have talked about that and I'll let him talk some more. Thank you, Sam. And yeah, I, I do want to reiterate that Jack and Sam and I all three have, have and are continuing to talk to the Department of Education. It does take your trump card away when you're losing six, seven, eight percent of your population every year. Uh, from formulas based on the number of children in your classrooms. And when that goes down, that's a difficult thing, uh, mm -hmm. but it does, as Jack said, it does really benefit Williamson County schools, fast-growing schools, well-performing schools, uh, and uh, it, the, the TSUP bill was in subcommittee this week, the, the one I serve on. It got out. It's going to full education on the House side as well. It got out of the Senate education this week. Uh, it will, it, I can tell, it will move out of education, full education, onto uh, government ops onto uh, finance, onto calendar rules, onto the floor. Okay. 
So, so that's, that's what the trajectory is. And it looks good in those committees? It does. As far as, far as I can tell today, yeah. uh, the overwhelming majority of House members are, uh, are for the bill. They like the transparency right. and what it does. Brandon Ogles. I think all in all, it's a it's a great piece of legislation. There are there are some uh, a little heartburn, I'd say, apprehension in the fact that the way it's uh, we keep being told this is a uh, this is a funding formula, not a spending formula. But there are some aspects with, for instance, the base that uh, there are certain things not drawn out. Mm -hmm. So there are members that are pushing back a little bit. I'm, I'm definitely one of them. There are certain things that we that we're required to see. Like, like what? Uh, for instance, I mean, I, I ran on school safety, and Williamson County's done a great job with school safety, funded that. Uh, right now, with the base amount, uh, we're being told that it's include, school safety is included in that number, but yet I need to see a line item and documentation to assure that those schools will spend that money towards school safety uh, uh, and spend that money towards SROs. Right now, uh, Tennessee has, I believe, 84% of our schools have school resource officers, which makes us the number one in the nation. And we'd hate to see that money reallocated because we've uh, got in a kind of comfort level or complacent and have and had a, a tragedy here lately to remind us how uh, valuable those officers are in our schools. Right. Uh, so we just want to be sure that that money's not reallocated somewhere else that money's not, uh, in turn, spent on facilities, new football fields, new LED lights on the baseball field, things that boosters and parents get real excited about. Right. It's, it's, it's some, of the, some of the things we spend money on education are not exciting. Right. And you don't have big boosters and clubs and people that vote for uh, school board members and county commissioners. It, it's just stuff that's a necessity. It's, it's not cool. It doesn't look good, but it just has to be spent. Uh, so with that base, there's some guardrails some of the members would like to see. Okay. Uh, and we understand that it's not a spending formula, it's a funding formula, but we would like to, as much as we trust our L LEAs, we'd like to verify that that money is allocated in a, in a couple areas that we're really passionate about. Right. Todd, uh, one of your neighbors uh, over in Murray County there, uh, close to your district, Scott Sapicki, is uh, apparently one of the... Uh, more vocal, um, I don't know if you call him a critic, but a uh, questioner about different aspects of this. Have, have you talked to him, and do you know what his concerns are? I haven't talked to him a whole lot, but I do serve on uh, one of the education committees with, with Scott, and he's very concerned about our education here in Tennessee. He wants what's best for our students, and he wants what's best for our teachers. That's his two main concerns. Uh, on the, uh, the bill we're talking about here, I'm in favor of it. I think there's 150 million in there, maybe for teacher salary. Is that am I correct on that, Senator? Uh, I think we need to pay our teachers more here in Tennessee. I think we rank uh, maybe 40th something in the nation on teacher salaries, and uh, we're going to hold them responsible. I think they I think they deserve a little bit more money. Uh, that being said, uh, I represent uh, right now four four pretty rural counties. There, there is concern from the county mayors. I think it's, what, year five, six, maybe. Uh, the, what do they call it, the maintenance effort. You know, it could go up some uh, in these rural counties. And there is definitely some concern there. But overall, I mean, I, I feel like I can support the bill. Good. Jack, the, uh, one of the con uh, criticisms of the BEP formula that I hear, understand it, may, uh, not be exactly the way I, I, I hear it out there, but that the BEP hasn't been fully funded. Uh, and so my question is, is this bill going to be fully funded? And uh, so the money that's the 6600 per child, is that actually going to all be delivered to the school systems? Yeah, great question. And it is a, a conversation we have a lot. Well, first of all, if you're going to use the term fully funded, you got to define what does fully funded mean? And different people are going to have different ideas about that. There are some out there that you could spend 20000 on each kid, and they're going to say that's not enough. You're not fully funding education. And in fact, that is the premise of the lawsuit that is pending before the Supreme Court right now, is that the state is not allocating or appropriating enough money for education. Now, I would argue that we have fully funded the BEP formula every year 
for the last 10 years. I mean, we've, we've been doing that. And, and but what I mean by that is you have a formula, and if you have a growth in student population, you have to fund the formula as it exists currently uh, to educate those kids. And, and we have done that. And we've actually put additional money in for things like teacher salaries and, and other things. And Brandon's, uh, the, the school safety money that Brandon fought so hard for, that was an additional appropriation. So we, we've put more money into education over the last 10 years, not to get too partisan, but since Republicans have been in control, far more money <laughs> than the Democrats did prior to that. And the numbers bear that out. Now, having said that, um, the governor has proposed this additional amount of money, and will that be enough? It's a billion dollars. It's more than we've ever put in in terms of an additional allocation into K-12 funding. There will be some that say, you're still not spending enough. Well, there, for some, again, it could be a bottomless pit. I think with this additional billion dollars as proposed by the governor, and keep in mind, we have the money. We're not raising taxes to do that. We're not taking on debt to do that. We have that money available on a recurring basis in order to do that should the General Assembly decide to do it. It's been proposed by the governor, the General Assembly has to agree to that. There's always a chance that that number could be modified to some degree uh, through the committee process. But yes, that would put us, and another way you might measure fully funding is looking at neighboring states, looking at similar states in terms of demographic makeup, cost of living. People sometimes rank us among all 50 states in terms of how much we spend per child. Well, that's an unfair characterization. It costs a lot less to live in Tennessee on the whole. It's getting more expensive, but it still costs a lot less to live in Tennessee than it does California, Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, so forth, because they have such a high tax burden. So when you modify that and adjust it for cost of living, we're fairly competitive, but this would certainly put us in the upper range in terms of states that are comparable to, to ours. I'm always one that, that has said, and I know my colleagues have said it as well, money is not the only answer. Throwing more money into a bad formula is not the answer. To, you need the accountability. You need the transparency. It's a partnership. It's teamwork. You need to make sure you're uh, uh, equipping your teachers with the appropriate training. And we love our teachers and so grateful for their dedication. We're losing teachers to some surrounding states because they pay more. I was so proud of Williamson County just the other day that, that voted to increase the minimum starting pay. So thank you guys for, for doing that to make sure we're being competitive. So long answer to a short question, I believe we have fully funded it as we've defined it. This new formula would say fund, fully funded is going to take that to a higher level. Right. The, uh, uh, any, any other comments from uh, you gentlemen? That's, uh, I've got a couple other Dave, points. I, I just want to add, <clears throat> since the Republicans have come in, we have put an emphasis on performance. Historically, the, the other party that was in power simply said, well, let's put money into it, and that solves it. Well, after looking at the state and other states, that's not the solution, just putting money in it. The solution is putting requirements and expecting return for our investment, and we've done a very good job on that. Let me ask you this, Glenn. The, uh, a lot of the um, criticism about Tennessee schools stems from what's going on in Davidson County and Shelby County. Uh, there, that's where most of the failing schools in our state are. Yeah. Is this going to fix that? You know, continuing the way we are doing it isn't working, right? So let's try something different. This is why I'm a proponent of charter schools and failing districts. Let's, let's look at what some, some uh, research has done and let's try it. Not guaranteeing anything, but it's better than continuing the same path and having the, con the same outcomes. Anybody else uh, feel different about the charter schools? Brandon, Todd, Sam? Everybody's, uh, Brandon might. Well, add I, 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 I think it's sometimes unfair to categorize certain districts in a, in a, with a broad stroke. Uh, there's definitely districts that have different uh, challenges to education. Uh, when you look at uh, the makeup of the the uh, the homes and that where those children mm -hmm. go to and the fact that you know having having a parent that highly engages in education sits down with that child and does homework uh, we give our school districts a lot of credit and our teachers a lot of credit but those parents being engaged are as much as part of that uh, learning process as any amount of money or funding or even teachers in the classroom so 
Good, good point. Thanks uh, for making so, that. And, and that's something that's not measured in a chart sometimes, and it's not measured in a funding formula. So uh, the, there are districts that have challenges, and the, those are up, uphill battles, and it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not an easy solution. Uh, right. So I think we just need to be careful sometimes when we categorize and try to uh, draw everybody or put everybody in the same box. Uh, right. So. Jack, the... Uh, uh, there was apparently a carve out uh, in some of the amendments that have been made to uh, bypass the, the, the local school districts with the charter schools money. Can you explain what that's about and uh, how that's been done? Well, that's not part of this bill. Oh, that, really? that, that's not part of the governor's initiative. That's, that's a totally separate piece of legislation. On the Senate side, that's being sponsored by, uh, by John Stevens. It's, it's not in any way tied to the governor's proposal. So I want to make sure that that's, that's understood. The only thing the governor's proposal does relative to charter schools is to take the money we now appropriate for charter schools. And we do provide money for charter schools in those areas where they exist. We don't have charter schools in Williamson County. But to take that money, and the, the, the dollar amount escapes me right now, but is an outside appropriation it's not included in the education formula. The governor has proposed, and, and I agree, that it should be part of the formula. It should be built into the, our total education funding matrix. Um, it is in, I gotta get into the weeds a little bit, but there are four components to the funding formula. You have the base, which I talked about. You have the weights. If you get us in the weeds, you have to get us back out. So. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, you have the base, you have the weights, you have direct funding, and then you have performance-based funding. So those are the four components. This direct funding component is where that charter money is, meaning that what that means is, is that we as the General Assembly can decide that we want to put money into something, charter schools or something else, but we don't want it to affect the, the formula, meaning if, you, if, we, if the state puts money into the formula, it has a trickle-down impact on what the local governments have to put in. And the BEP does that now. When we increase BEP funding, it, it typically creates an additional funding burden on the local governments. And that's how it's happened for the last 30 years. The great thing about this new formula is it will give us a mechanism to where we as a state can say, you know what, we think we should spend some money on this, but not have it impact the contribution of the local government. Does that make sense? And that's where this charter funding money is. Now, back to the other legislation. Uh, Senator Stevens' legislation, I'm not sure who has it on the House side. It, it, we have a charter authorizer right now, and if, and if a charter applicant applies to the local board and is denied uh, the, the application to put a charter school into a district, they can appeal that to, to, a, to a charter authorizer, and they have mm -hmm. to make a case as to why this charter school would be needed. The legislation that's proposed says that if an applicant is denied three times in a row and the charter authorizer overrides that decision by the local government three times, then now they can apply directly to the charter authorizer because there's apparently some, some reason. But that's a totally separate bill. I don't even know if the bill's advanced out of committee right now. And, and, and these guys can speak to where it is in the House. And Dave, I think you're talking about the legislation if a charter school can uh, take if a facility is not at 50% usage. Is that the, what you're talking about? And right. the, uh, I believe the county commission or school boards have, have issues with that because if you take a school that's at 50%, let's say it's a new school and they just had through redistricting or uh, they are concerned about that and then you have to have multiple gymnasiums and, and so there is concerns. And my friends up on the hill who are pro-charter uh, advocates uh, have concerned about taking that local control away. So uh, that, I think that's the bill you're talking about and there's been, uh, we've been given uh, resolutions uh, expressing their concerns are local. Okay. Dwayne? I, I add to that, on the House subcommittee, I think uh, to be real clear, no local money goes to charter schools. So okay. I just wanna be real emphatic on that. And I thought that Stevens bill was uh, not on notice and chairman, yeah. Chairman White, uh, who carries it on the House side, made that statement, and I think Todd and I both heard him, and so we're assuming it's dead in the Senate, and I, so I don't know if it's going to move, but, but I, I could have misunderstood what Mark was saying, maybe. Okay. 
Uh, just want to remind our audience you're going to get a test after, after this is over, so uh, pay, pay, pay close attention here. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, I'll let whoever wants to answer, uh, address this, uh, uh, just, just grab the mic. But uh, Channel 5 did an investigative report a couple of weeks ago that I saw a report on. And a lot of money is coming in from outside our state, from billionaires and corporate interest, to pay the lobbyists that are um, lobbying for, for this education bill, as I understand it. And uh, I wonder if that's in the best interest of our uh, citizens here in Tennessee. Um, I think that's all I need to say. Just. Why, why do we depend on outside money to, uh, to pay the lobbyists? Brandon, you've got, a, you've got a look on your face that you might have a, a thought about that. Well, it's, it's definitely eye-opening. I know one of the first receptions I went to, I had served on a non-for-profit, uh, the Homework Hotline for State of Tennessee, uh, that helps students uh, out of Nashville, that helps students with homework. Literally, they would call in and teachers sit. And uh, we, we, were, we were fighting for every dollar of funding and donations and just to operate. So to, to walk into a, a beautiful hotel with fancy drinks and shrimp and all this and to hear that they're a non-for-profit in education, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I was like, wow, I, this is not how we spend our money uh, when we're trying to help children uh, in this state so you know some of the tactics and how the money is allocated and used definitely raises uh, questions uh, especially where they're based now that's once again broad stroke you can't say that for all organizations but uh, I'm very leery to trust an organization that one I don't know who they are I don't know the people that are involved with them and if they just come into town and uh, hire a contract lobbyist who get paid to, to advocate for their clients, uh, you have to take everything that's said with a grain of salt. And you, you know, there, there's discernment, and it, we all know who we're talking to. I right. mean, there, there's a difference when you're talking to a, a contract lobbyist and you're talking to your superintendent of schools, or you're talking to your school board members. That, that, that is not weighted the same. Right. Uh, you trust your people from home, you trust the people you've known for a long time, and uh, to say that um, you can attend an event or see something or talk to somebody and you're obligated to uh, side with their, their client or what they represent is just a stretch at best. I mean, you, you've elected people that care about their community uh, and are engaged in their community and that's always going to be the case. Right. Um, uh, so just, just be leery of everything you see in the news. <laughs> that, that is, yeah, be very leery. But, and Brandon, you nailed it. I mean, we want your all's feedback. We care what the citizens of Williamson County think and say, including the leadership. Uh, but every lobbyist up there is paid by somebody and something from out of state, be it a business, be it AFL-CIO, be it NAACP. I mean, the list is long. Mm -hmm. So every lobbyist, everyone, is paid for by some kind of out-of-state connection. And uh, the vast majority of legislators is kind of, when they come in, we just kind of, you know, okay. And, but the folks back home is who we listen to, and that's what we care about. Sam, uh, this is a great segue into a bill that you are carrying, I think, for the Lieutenant Governor and the Speaker of the House uh, on campaign finance. Um, does it address any of these issues, or what, what, what are you trying to do with that bill? Well, it, it does not address the lobbyists. Um, Process, uh, lobbying process so much as it deals with several areas. One <coughs> deals with the uh, Bureau of Ethics and uh, Registry as campaign finance. Uh, there's been some talk about we need to look at how that process works, uh, how do they meet the makeup of the board, their terms. Right now, uh, they serve an unlimited, basically unlimited term. They get reelected or reappointed. And, uh, on the registry especially. So uh, the proposal was to limit it to one five-year term for each member, bring in, uh, uh, increase the size of the board from the current six for the registry to eight to include uh, uh, selection from the uh, uh, 
the Council on Open Government. I think I got that right. There's made up of members, you know, maybe the uh, chief of police associations or the uh, different uh, civic groups. So we're looking at that. Also, uh, the speaker has expressed concern. Right now, when we spend up to $100 or get a $100 uh, contribution, it really you just kind of list that in a general form on the campaign finance report. Right now, though, we want to put more uh, visibility on that, where the money's spent and uh, the day it's spent and what it's spent for. Um, we felt like maybe some members, and nobody in here, but some members have spent, uh, taken advantage of that $100 uh, reporting uh, cap and uh, take their kids to McDonald's every uh, weekend. And so we want to make sure that is being done correctly. And uh, let me see, I got my list of other stuff. <laughs> it's 40 sections plus three other amendments and uh, uh, working it over in the Senate. And I tell you, it's been an eye-opening uh, uh, adventure for the past year. Um, I may be the most unpopular guy in the General Assembly come next week when it hits the uh, committee. <laughs> but, you're still, well, I can't say this. I was going to say you're still one of the, this one of the most popular guys in Williamson County, though. What's that? I said you're still one of the most popular guys in Williamson County, well, Sam. So. For a while. Anyway, so. Uh, um, one of five, anyway. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're looking also at this 10-day reporting period right before election. Right now, uh, there's not electronic means to do that. We're going to do that. The Senate came back with a really good idea. Uh, i got to give that to the Senate as we're going through this, is to require a photo ID if you open up a pack. So I thought that was good. We're taking a look at 501c4s, nonprofits that get involved in elections, uh, more reporting and transparency on that. Um, and uh, we found out also uh, on the governor's uh, cabinet, they were receiving consulting fees. We had one member of the governor's cabinet, uh, finance and insurance, is that? Or commerce, the, and insurance. commerce and insurance. The guy was receiving $8,000 a month uh, from his uh, old employer uh, for consulting, and he was supposed to be regulating them. So he's no longer on mm. the governor's cabinet, and we're going to put that into code that you can't do it. Um, and um, also we're looking at staff members and members of the General Assembly doing campaign work. Several years ago, uh, Speaker Harwell had to let someone go who was uh, a legislative assistant but was doing campaign work full time. And uh, oh, that committee where we're talking about looking at two other members on the uh, registry is the Advisory Committee on Open Government. I want to make sure I got that right. And, um, but it will be, we put it on notice yesterday. Uh, it'll be in uh, local full next week, we hope. And uh, but I just appreciate the Senate leadership and the Speaker, uh, uh, you know, allowing me to carry this. Uh, I got uh, Representative Ryan Williams is my backup on that. He's very knowledgeable of this uh, legislation, and right. it's it's going to be. Uh, it, it, there will be changes, I'm sure, as we go through this. But it's uh, I think it's needed. And we'll see where it goes. Jack, how does that look in the Senate right now? I think it looks well. Um, again, the speakers, both the Speaker of the Senate, Lieutenant Governor McNally, and uh, Speaker of the House are very interested in this. And uh, again, something that we've been talking about for, for some time. So I, I think it's, it looks good. Okay. Hand the mic down to the other end. Todd, you have a comment about that? I was fixing to ask you a Yeah, question. I got a uh, com going back to the lobbyist here, and, and I'm a freshman freshman member down there mm -hmm. and uh, one thing that I've had a hard time uh, swallowing down there and you you folks might not know it but your tax dollars are going to fund state state lobbyists state funded lobbyists that work for the administration any bill I think I've had four bills this year killed by the administration and what do I mean by that each department has what we call liaisons down there go-betweens that, that go between the administration and us and uh, I think that they should have to register as lobbies because that's what they do all day. When we're in session, they're in court of the whole building, and they work on killing our bills if they don't like it. If I have something that might benefit, benefit uh, you, you guys, and if they don't like it, they get it killed. Happens all the time. Uh, it's just it's something that I've struggled with as a freshman member. You know, I didn't realize that's how, how things work down there. 
there's a YouTube video out there. I ask you to look up and you can kind of see what I'm talking about. Senator Kerry Roberts uh, spoke out in committee, committee the other day on it, and he explained it very well. So if you get a chance, look that up. But anyway, I just wanted to make that comment. While, while you've got the mic, uh, or Brandon, do you want to address that? Uh, he does. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, the, 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 the lia liaisons for the departments, they really ha do have a hard job because we've, we ask certain departments to serve certain functions as subsections of the government, and yet when we uh, task them with doing so something, sometimes we don't like how they do it. And that's the, that's the uh, separation of powers. Um, I was in the middle of a discussion in the hallway. Uh, you know, it, it, to me, sometimes it's like, you know, you, you tell the Department of Ag to go buy tractors and how to do something, and then we as General Assembly decide to take the wheels off the tractor, and you still want them to function the way you told them to. So it, it's a balancing act. They definitely, it, it's hard to hear that a department, uh, and I think they're getting better with their wording, sometimes is fundamentally opposed to a piece of legislation. Uh, I, I think that they've got a hard task to fulfill and they're, they're really doing a balancing act because they, they're trying to, uh, in many ways, protect their department, protect the administration, uh, and sometimes, quite frankly, there's legislation that's hostile yep. and that does not work well with the previous laws the General Assembly has passed. So, uh, you know, uh, a good idea, and I've, quite frankly, I've probably, no, I haven't, I've never filed a bad bill. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, th there's probably times that something has been filed that's, that's, that's hostile, to, not to the department, but to, to the working of the department, how it's been done previous years, and, and they have a hard time with it sometimes. Okay. So, uh, whether we, they register as lobbyists, whether we just, are more careful sometimes with our words. But uh, I do think there's value in hearing directly from a, say, the Department of Safety, Jeff Long, former sheriff from Williamson County. Department of Safety does a great job. Uh, when I have a piece of legislation, I take that to them before it's ever filed and say, hey, can you tell me, give me some input? Do we have any conflicts here? Or how can I make this better? Um, not all members do that. Yeah. Uh, and and I, one thing I will say is anytime anybody's surprised in the General Assembly, it usually does not go well. So uh, surprises, late fall amendments, uh, it, it, they're hard to negotiate sometimes. Right. Critical race theory. Uh, apparently a bill this month. Uh, Apparently a bill passed by wide margins in both houses, uh, Senate and the House, to define and uh, instruct our education systems, uh, I think specifically the uh, colleges, how to uh, handle critical race theory. Um, who would like to address that and tell us what's going on and uh, what critical race theory is now, uh, how it's defined? and how we're supposed to handle that. Well, you may recall last year we passed legislation uh, that I believe we all supported, I certainly did enthusiastically, that never mentioned critical race theory, but, but it said that you would be, our, our K-12 school districts would be prohibited from teaching certain concepts. Mm -hmm. like you're not gonna teach a kid in our schools that they should be ashamed because they're white. We will not have that. And if you want that, I'm not your state senator. Okay, then find somebody else, because I will fight that tooth and nail. That you should feel guilty because of something that happened a thousand years ago. We, it does not prohibit teaching history. We need to teach about slavery and Jim Crow, segregation, the civil rights movement, and you can absolutely do that. But you're not gonna teach kids that they should be ashamed of who they are because of their skin color, or because of something that their great-great-great-great-grandparents did many years ago. So that's, it goes deeper than that, but that's the basic premise. That's what we passed for K-12. This bill is similar, but different in significant ways. This is higher ed, and in higher ed, it's, you've got more mature people. 
they, the kids, the students, they talk about different things, and you want a free exchange of ideas in the college environment. But we've gotten far too many reports from our publicly funded universities in the state of Tennessee that kids are being penalized because of their viewpoints. They're being penalized because they disagree with the professor. And we will not have that in our publicly funded education uh, at, the, at the higher education level. You can talk about theories, you can talk about concepts, and you can talk about things. And again, we've all received direct communication from constituents with proof that this happened. Because a kid challenged a professor on their liberal, leftist, socialist viewpoints and said, I don't agree with that. I believe in free markets. I believe in capitalism. I support President Trump. And they get penalized for that. That's what the bill does. It does not stifle debate or discussion at the higher education level, but it says that you will not be penalized. And by the way, not just students, faculty members, which has happened. I've been contacted by people who work in higher education and they're denied tenure, they're denied a promotion, they're denied something because they don't agree with some of these leftist viewpoints. We want a free exchange of ideas in higher education and all viewpoints should be welcome. That's what the bill does. So uh, the fact that I got, I got in trouble in eighth grade for supporting Barry Goldwater with my eighth grade teacher, that, that won't happen again. <laughs> well, that was eighth grade. We're talking about a higher education bill, but no, it shouldn't happen anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I asked for that, didn't I? <laughs> did, did, the, did the mics pick that comment up, Creed? Okay. The, uh, um, <laughs> I had something else I was going to ask, but it's... Oh, there, there was something about First Amendment rights uh, that the college professors have that the high school teachers don't have. I didn't understand that. Can you uh, explain what that's about? Well, I, I think it ties into what I was talking about in, in terms of the higher education. And it is, it, it, it's a different animal uh, it, when you start talking about higher education and talking about different ideas and, and viewpoints and concepts. And I certainly believe in a First Amendment uh, right, but you should have the same First Amendment protection if you're a conservative in higher education. And that's, that's what we're saying. Okay. It should apply, apply equally. Right. What, one more subject before we uh, ask the audience for any questions they might have. Brandon, I'm going to ask you. Uh, there was a domestic violence bill uh, that was proposed. I don't think it uh, passed the Senate, but you're... Uh, kind of the point guy in our delegation for uh, domestic violence, uh, violence against uh, uh, rape victims, things like that. What's, what have you got going on in that area this, this year? Well, the uh, domestic violence uh, legislation, I, I had one a couple years ago that was actually registering repeat offenders for domestic violence. And uh, you would be astounded how many cases we have in Tennessee. Uh, Tennessee is actually one of the worst ranking states in the nation right now. We're usually worse during that bottom three to five percentile uh, statewide. Uh, why this is, it's, some of this could be con contributed to, uh, and I have a bill uh, right now that's running for, through our uh, higher ed for our colleges, uh, requiring some changes to the reporting and how we do reporting. Uh, Tennessee does do a really good job reporting crimes for the most part, and that's a double-edged sword. So we report crimes, we prosecute crimes, but on paper that sometimes make us, makes us look like we're the worst of the worst. Well, we're, we're law enforcement's doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, and we're reporting that crimes. Uh, so uh, it, when you see these statistics, sometimes it's, it's, you have to weigh through the numbers and get down to what they actually mean. Um, Lots of aggressive legislation going through the House right now uh, for crim uh, crimes. Uh, we're, uh, we have several bills that really, that with criminal justice reform, and I think you heard me say this years ago, uh, there's, there's two movements, I would say, in the reform. One is to give treatment to those who are in drug courts uh, that have addiction problems, those kind of petty crimes, 
people we may have needed to give treatment to that we incarcerated, held for maybe too long, some can say. And then there's also, with that, is reallocating funds to uh, further incarcerate those who we are afraid of that are really a threat to society, who reoffend at a high rate, uh, and those that have predatory behaviors. So um, right now uh, there's a bill that's advancing in the House that I've got. Uh, it reclassifies some uh, really bad crimes against children. Um, it's a extremely aggravated rape, extremely aggravated rape of a child, and it's actually got a life sentence. Uh, so those that really hurt people and really do bad stuff, right now the sentencing range is between 8 to 30 years. Uh, that piece of legislation has 70 co-sponsors, all the leadership on it, and it's probably one of the most aggressive pieces of legislation in the United States uh, that's been passed in the last 20 years. Uh, frankly, we just don't tolerate that in this state. Looking for support in the Senate, uh, but so so from the House Criminal Justice Committee, uh, you're seeing some of the most aggressive legislation in the country as far as violent offenders, sexual offenders, and the domestic violence will continue to increase. That's a heavy, heavy lip because of the huge financial burden. Um, we do have a problem with that in the state, and right. part of that's more going to be educating our young people and educating our boys that we don't hurt women, we don't hurt other people, and there's ways to deal with things other than your fist and right. being violent. Gotcha. Thank you for that. Uh, we do like to open it up for questions. I know this audience looks full of uh, questioning eyes. Uh, who would like to ask the first question? Introduce yourself, Beverly. Maybe somebody else is here. <laughs> Bev Berger, Alderman, City of Franklin. Thanks, guys. Oh, this is extremely helpful this morning. So you have a lot on your plate. I uh, just want to make one comment. Um, you mentioned about the lobbying through the departments, um, through the commissioners and the departments. I would just say one thing to that. Um, it is government, so beg, be, bear with me. Most of these departments are full of bureaucrats. We just know that. And you are mostly business people up here. And we elect you to go to the state and represent us and bring a perspective from your constituents from a business perspective and from a free market perspective. So walk gingerly because I'm not a big fan of having our departments hiring and doing lobbying with you all. They can speak to you all day long and they can make appointments and they can ask you to come in and sit down with them and they should. But this lobbying effort sometimes really gets out of hand because they're bureaucrats, they're not your constituents. So I would make that comment and I appreciate you all addressing that, thank you. I'd, I'd like to speak to that, thank you Bev and, and I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, Brandon did a great job, we work for you. If, if you live in Williams County, you're our bosses. You're our shareholders, if you, if you will. And you decide whether or not we're in office. Um, we don't represent special interests. We represent you. They may weigh in and have their thoughts. Uh, dealing with the administration, I went head-to-head -head with the administration this year on a particular bill. And, and what Todd was talking about absolutely happened. Um, someone brought me a bill. It's in the healthcare industry. I won't bore you with details. But it was a, a very technical kind of issue relative to a piece of equipment that's used in a particular, in, in hospitals usually, in ambulatory surgical centers. And they said this, this statute is outdated and the department has rules that won't allow for some new technology that works better and is more efficient, takes up less space. Would you please file this bill to make this little change in terms of how that works? Sure, absolutely. I met with everybody and we talked about it. And as we typically do, I went to the relative department and I said, I'm bringing this bill. I'd like, you know, for, for your feedback on it. Well, they went ballistic. And, and it was all because of this bureaucrat deep in the bowels of state government who didn't like the General Assembly playing in their sandbox. Well, that made me mad because we make the laws and you execute the laws. It's the executive branch. And I love our governor and we've got great relationships with, with the people up there. They came and testified against the bill. They worked against my bill in committee. 
But you know what? I worked with my members as well, and it came out unanimously <laughs> over the governor's objections. And, and I, on great terms with the governor, and we talked about it. The governor wasn't necessarily that involved, but it was a bureaucrat downstream. And it was a perfect example. And I believe the House has moved through that. You guys probably know what bill I'm talking about. I don't want to disclose you know, what it was. But we do that. We do. And so we have to go head to head with that bureaucracy sometimes because we represent the people. They represent the bureaucracy. Back to, uh, I think it was 10 years ago now, I had a bill that would delete uh, the executive branch from lobbying the legislative branch. That's a clear violation to me of the Constitution. And, uh, and it failed. For some reason, the, the executive branch flagged that bill and worked against it and killed it. <laughs> but I couldn't agree more, and that's something that these guys ought to look at very seriously. I do think we have to be careful with that because many times, as we spoke earlier about the contract lobbyists from out of state, just remember those bureaucrats and those state agencies, those are Tennesseans. They have lived in the state a long time. They live in our local communities. Sometimes the, the wedge or part of the firewall between the contract lobbies from out of states are those bureaucrats, are those li liaisons that work for the departments. And sometimes it takes those in conjunction with certain members to hurt legislation that's bad for Tennesseans. Yeah. So it, it, it is definitely a balancing act. Uh, yeah. Some of the work they do is really, really well. Uh, good work. Maybe, maybe the solution is to have them register as lobbyists. But uh, I, I do think uh, that they provide a service and they definitely uh, advocate for their departments and that, that bureaucracy of government, which we have created, which we have tasked them with performing and sometimes we don't like it but that's right. that's your beautiful democracy time for one more quick question Jessica did I see your hand flutter when I said something about questions uh, <laughs> that was yours okay what about it Patty no, they're doing a great job. <laughs> gentlemen you get off easy today the uh, we've uh, <laughs> well maybe not pardon me Feel like I'm holding a hand grenade. <laughs> <laughs> Been a great discussion this morning. I appreciate again the time you all take to come and be with us and uh, and you know kind of help us understand kind of what goes on behind the scenes. Um, until I got involved in these sessions, I really didn't understand all the mechanics of how legislation gets done and and undone. And uh, we really appreciate the um, insights y'all are giving us here. The, uh, I got a note handed to me a minute ago, and I'm going to read it because I, I, I want to make sure I get this right. Upon conclusion of policy talks, meet the candidates, which is WKM's uh, uh, effort to uh, let us get to know the uh, other candidates that are running for election, I think in the May primaries, uh, will be on WKM in partnership with the Williamson Herald. Attendees are welcome to remain in the community room here if they'd like to and watch it. If they'd like to continue networking, we'd ask that they head to the lobby and the coffee station so uh, we can go outside and drink more coffee. Thank you to uh, McDonald's. And uh, then the interviews will be live on WKAM, WAKM and Williamson Inc.'s Facebook page. So uh, immediately after we finish up here, if everybody wants to watch the uh, the uh, Meet the Candidates show, you can stay in here. The rest of us can go out and uh, pick the brains of these gentlemen more out in the lobby. Just want to thank uh, several people for the way this show comes together. Of course, Columbia State, Dr. Lampley, Janet Smith, uh, Mary Beth Shally, uh, Joe, uh, is it Joe, that uh, takes care of the logistics here normally. We uh, appreciate uh, you making us feel at home here. Of course, Creed Henderson and the WCTV crew uh, always make us look good on TV. Well, most of y'all. And uh, WAKM and uh, Tom Lawrence, we appreciate you getting us on the air out there on WAKM. Uh, we do have some financial assistance from AT&T, thanks to Dennis Wagner, who's with us this morning, and from Vanderbilt University, our contact there, Lynn Maddox. We, we love her, appreciate them. Uh, the Good Food Group that owns most of the McDonald's in Franklin and Brentwood, 
uh, is now responsible for our coffee. We got the, got a better deal than Senior Coffee at McDonald's. It's free here, so if you want to get here before the 7:30 show, you're welcome to come and enjoy some coffee with us. Uh, the team from Williamson Inks, uh, Matt, Kel, Nancy, Abby, Jenna, we appreciate all the the assistance to uh, make this happen, and uh, really appreciate uh, all that. There, our next show will be April 29th back here. Um, and I've got a quick question. The education bill is so complicated. Is the session this year gonna last longer than through the 1st of May or what should we expect there? Well, in, in typical, fortune, uh, typical fashion, rather, the Senate will be ready to adjourn here in a couple of weeks. The House is probably gonna need a couple of more months. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, I, we're still going to shoot for a for a late April uh, adjournment. It may spill over into the first of May. Okay, we will probably have our last uh, session with these gentlemen next month. I uh, hope you all be back. Uh, appreciate everybody being here this morning. Thank you.